Welcome into the harvest. I'm Andrew Stroud. Over the past 15 years, a quiet movement has been happening in the American church. A growing number of people are shifting back to historic forms of church. In a culture where meaning and mystery are increasingly hard to find, people are rediscovering them in traditional liturgical denominations, notably the Roman Catholic, Anglican, and Orthodox branches of the faith. My guest today is one of those people. Rob Belton is a chaplain with the U.S. Army currently serving in the Middle East. He's a priest in the Anglican tradition serving with the Anglican Church in North America. He's also my friend and someone I've known for almost 20 years now. Rob was not raised Anglican, but found himself drawn to that church's historic approach to faith and practice. In our conversation, Rob shares from his own journey of faith and explains why many today are rediscovering the liturgical church. We also talk about three frequencies of faith, mind, heart, and body, and how those frequencies shape our understanding of church and discipleship. Now, to be clear, I am not part of what's often referred to as the high church, but I do believe there are things we can learn from our fellow believers in those faith traditions. I'm grateful to Rob for joining me today and hope this conversation is an encouragement to you. Well, Rob, welcome to the show. It's good to have you on, man. Hey, thanks, Andrew. Really appreciate the invitation. It's, uh, it's good to be with you from many miles away, and it's great to, great to see you and hear your voice, brother. That's right. People who are watching this on YouTube uh, wouldn't realize it, but you are literally a world away on uh, the other side of the world in the Middle East uh, recording this conversation. So I really appreciate you working it into your schedule and uh, making time to have this conversation. You and I go back how long? When, when did we meet? Do you remember? We met in 2001. Back yeah. in 2001. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I love about this particular podcast is that I get to interview people that I've just met or that I've just gotten to know that I've never met in person. Uh, and then I get to spotlight friends who love the Lord and who have been faithfully serving him for decades and that I've got this long term relationship with. So you're definitely one of the latter. And uh, I'm excited to have you on and to have this conversation today. We're going to be talking about low church, high church. For some of our listeners, those may not even be terms they're familiar with, but hopefully by the end of this conversation, they'll have a better understanding of the difference between those things. And, and most of us who are listening are probably low church. Um, you, however, started off low church and now are a, a, a chaplain, but you're also ordained by the Anglican church. So let me just start off with this question, which is, what is liturgy? Could you spend a few moments just defining for us what liturgy is? Yeah, absolutely. What a, what a great question. Liturgy, that word means uh, the work of the people. Um, every Christian tradition actually has liturgy, whether they realize it or not. Uh, some traditions have less, some have more, some is less structured, uh, some is more structured. Uh, but liturgy at its best is scripture uh, that is organized for worship. And it gives voice to the cry of our hearts uh, to connect with God, not just 
individually, but together with his people as we come together to worship him. It could be in a primary service on a Sunday morning, uh, but it could also be uh, throughout the week. So for example, in the Anglican tradition within Christianity, we, have, we gather on Sunday mornings for the Holy Eucharist. So the liturgy in the Book of Common Prayer gathers us together. We come, we praise God uh, with our voices, with our hearts, with our instruments. We listen to his word read. We have four passages of scripture every Sunday. Uh, we pray together, we confess our sins together, and then we move to the Lord's table together, to the Eucharist, where the Lord gives us himself and strengthens us, gives us gives us what we need. So that's on Sundays and other special days. But throughout the week, we have morning prayer and evening prayer. And this is a daily rhythm. It's part of our daily life as Christians, where again, we get together, we pray, we read scripture uh, by doing what's called the daily office. We make it through the entire Psalter every month or every two months. We make it through uh, pretty much the whole Old Testament in a year. And we make it through the entire New Testament twice in a year. And we're doing that together in community as we worship the Lord and seek him uh, together as brothers and sisters in Christ. So long answer to a short question, uh, but liturgy, the work of the people, it's, uh, it's scripture organized for worship so that God's people uh, can come together and praise him and, and learn from him. So for, for many of us who, who don't have such a, a structured approach to liturgy, um, what do you, how would you describe maybe what the common believer who's in a Protestant church in America, what does liturgy look like for them? I know that that's, the, I'm asking you to kind of step outside of your current, you know, faith tradition, but just to help people understand that, that like you said, all of us do have liturgical practices. It's just mm -hmm. that uh, for most of us, those are um, either not very um, conscious uh, or not very intentional. So what might liturgy look like for someone who is not from more of a high church tradition? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that question. I think it's an important one. And, you know, I this, this whole thing is very personal to me because I spent, as you mentioned earlier, so many years of my life in uh, what we might call the free church or low church uh, tradition. And, and that's still very much a part of my background. Right. And uh, has led me to where I am today. And, you know, not for a minute do I want to come across as sounding haughty or, or arrogant, like, hey, I got it all figured out. Um, while I do feel very strongly about some distinctives in the historical church tradition, and we can talk about that a little later, um, at the end of the day, all who call in Christ, I mean, we, we are members of the same team, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Um, and, and still a great deal of my ministry as an army chaplain is, is within those circles. So while I tend not to lead those services, I do still participate by, you know, I play the guitar, I help with singing, that type, that type of thing. Um, so I definitely look for opportunities to partner whenever possible. But back, back to your question, um, what does it look like? It, it'll vary by chapel service, by, uh, by church or denomination, but generally speaking for what we might call low church Protestantism, it'll be something like an opening prayer, um, several songs, uh, typically with the words, you know, showing up on the, on the screen, um, maybe a scripture reading, a, a lengthy sermon, and then maybe a time at the end for a little bit of prayer or, or another song. 
again, that, that can vary here and there, but that's generally uh, the flow. Hmm. So it is a liturgy. It's a, it's a simpler liturgy than what we find um, in the historic church tradition. Right. And it tends to be in, in terms of the communal uh, liturgical practice, it tends to be very Sunday centric. So uh, in terms of our participation in in that liturgy together, usually we're, we're only getting that involvement during a set amount of time, maybe a two hour period on Sunday morning for most of us that are, are going to mm-hmm. a, a traditional church service. But the order of that service uh, would be considered the uh, the liturgy the liturgy, the, the, the thing that the things that are happening during that time where we're gathered together. Um, but historically, the the church has has had a perhaps a broader, uh, more ongoing practice of liturgy and and both both in terms of day to day, but also in terms of the calendar, uh, which maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that right now. We are uh, in the season of Lent, uh, the space between Ash Wednesday and Easter. And I, I believe there's been, I've observed a shift even among what you said, the, the free church, um, the, the low, the lower church traditions, uh, within Protestantism to at least with certain, uh, parts of the year, like Easter, like Ash Wednesday, um, and even the the season of Lent, Advent has been something that I've definitely seen an, an increase in uh, participation in amongst uh, all believers here in the West. So it seems that there is a bit of a shift towards a reconnecting with some of those older traditions. And yet for many of us, we may not even realize that they are older traditions. So, um, but let me ask you before, I, I want to get into your story about how how you've ended up being ordained by the Anglican Church. But just to finish up this this initial conversation on liturgy, um, how does liturgy shape us in terms of our our faith and and our growth? Uh, Why is it important? Liturgy forms our hearts. And one thing that we often like to say in the Anglican tradition is if you want to know what we believe, come and pray with us. And what we mean is come and pray Mm -hmm. Uh, the daily office with us. So the liturgy really does shape us. It, it inculcates within us this, this rhythm in our life and in our worship, where we're gathering together, we're confessing our sins, we're receiving God's gracious uh, forgiveness of those sins. We're hearing his word read, and we, we hear it frequently on a regular basis. So for example, I mentioned earlier, we read through the entire Psalter every month or every two months. Well, what does that do as you do that so repeatedly? Far from just being rote, it actually ministers to our hearts, right? And it gets deep within us and we, we memorize it without even, without even trying to, right? So, you know, back, and we can talk about this later, but back in the Navigator days, I always had a scripture verse, right? And that's awesome. And that's something I, I totally encourage, right? Scripture memory. But my personal disciplines have changed instead of having like a chapter and verse. Now it's just this overarching flow of scripture that I'm steadily feeding on on a regular basis. And so the liturgy, which is formed by scripture and then the scripture itself continues to guide our hearts and fill our hearts. And it, and it just shapes us in our not only our prayer time, our worship time, uh, but but also our lives. So uh, liturgy uh, really does speak to um 
God's love, it addresses God's love for us and it addresses our need for him and how we as brothers and sisters in Christ come together um, and give him the praise that he's due. Well, let's uh, let's shift a little bit to to your story, because when you and I met back in the early 2000s, um, you weren't a chaplain. <laughs> um, you were a follower of Jesus. Um, so tell me a little bit about and you weren't Anglican. So tell me a little bit about what's shaped your journey over the last 20 years to to bring you where you are today and a little bit for our listeners about what your your current ministry looks like. Yeah, certainly. No, it's great. And I, I love telling the story uh, whenever I get a chance. So I'll actually start just a little bit prior to uh, 20 years, uh, 20 years ago. Um, I'm not sure if I ever shared this with you, but both of my granddads were actually army chaplains. Uh, so one was a Lutheran and uh, one was a Baptist. Both loved Jesus. Actually, my Lutheran grandfather is still alive. He's, uh, I think, 95 now and just going strong. It's pretty remarkable. But both of those men just had a wonderful godly impact uh, in my life over the years. Both talked about Jesus all the time, loved people well, shared the gospel, all those things. My Lutheran grandfather from time to time would give me books to read um, that, would, that would emphasize historic Christianity, maybe confessional Christianity. And I would just kind of pick up some things here and there that sort of stuck with me over the years, kind of put a pin on it. And, and I would, you know, come around to that a little bit later in life. Um, I grew up in a, in a Christian home. Both my parents know the Lord, um, and I'm so thankful for that. We had devotions every night at the dinner table, reading the Bible. My dad was in the army, and so we went to general Protestant services for most of my life. There was a time when we uh, started going to a church that was part of the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, so Reformed, uh, Evangelical, very high regard for Scripture, great preaching, all of that. Um, it was during my teenage years, I had been quite rebellious in my faith, had really slipped away from walking with the Lord and, and was renewed in my faith. Uh, God really reached into my heart through, through a friend, convicted me of my sin and really began to enliven and, and awaken me in terms of faith. I really gravitated towards the free church, um, because of music. Music was always a big part of my life. I was learning how to play the guitar I loved rock music. I began to experience contemporary Christian music, and that was it was very helpful to me where I was in that time, in that place. And so the Free Church kind of offered that, and, and I gravitated towards it. I went off to college in Florida. I did Army ROTC at Florida Southern College, um, and that's where I met my wife, Meredith. And uh, we both got, we, we started dating. We got plugged in with campus ministry, and again, kind of stayed uh, in, in those uh, circles. Graduated college in uh, 2001, once to Fort Lee, Virginia, uh, to the Quartermaster Officer Basic Course. For your listener, that's the branch in the Army that deals with supply and, and logistics. And uh, met, a, met a couple of guys there, uh, Bubba Lewis and Doug Cody, uh, two, two navigators who began, uh, they and their wives began meeting with Meredith and I and really helping us to better understand what it looks like uh, to follow Jesus through reading scripture, memorizing scripture, and, and sharing our faith uh, with others. It really made a profound impact, and to this day, we're so thankful for that. When we moved to Fort Bragg for our first assignment, Doug Cody told me I needed to get with a young man named Andrew Stroud, uh, <laughs> who was on staff with the Navigators. Um, so Andrew, appreciate you, brother, and the way you poured into me um, 
over over those years. Um, let's see. Oh, I, I skipped the part. Can I back up for a minute? Sure. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, no, you know what? I didn't skip a part. Sorry, I'm anticipating. I'm, I'm, <laughs> that's how you know I'm you're getting, my. That's how you know you're getting old, brother. When you, uh, oh, <laughs> when you start man. losing the thread on your own story. <laughs> I started I've anticipating the chaplain years before. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, in the army, uh, stationed at Fort Bragg, plugged in with the navigators, hooked up with Chapel Next, um, continued, um, you know, in, in that in that vein for a while. After my Afghanistan deployment in uh, 2003. Uh, moved back to Fort Lee. I got picked up for a job there. And my wife, Meredith, um, got picked up to be the youth director for the Protestant youth of the chapel um, at Fort Lee. And I got to be her helper just as a, as a volunteer. And so what I tried to do there was to uh, implement some of the lessons I learned from guys like you and Doug and Bubba and just walk with guys and disciple them um, in their in their Christian faith. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I thought, man, I could really see myself doing this. Mm. I had to make a decision. Was I going to stay in the army, get out of the army? Uh, army was good. I wasn't really passionate about logistics. Long story short, um, I decided to get out. I sensed a call from the Lord uh, to, go, to, sem- to uh, go into ministry. And I didn't really know what that meant. So I thought, well, I better get some training. And so I ended up going to seminary uh, at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Massachusetts, a multi-denominational evangelical school uh, founded by Billy Graham and uh, John Harold Ockengay. Mm-hmm. Just a wonderful reputation for biblical, uh, for surrendering to biblical authority and, and really digging deep in, in the scriptures. So I had a great formative uh, education there. God opened the door for me to become a pastor at a church in Maine, a River of Life. It was a non-denominational church out of a Baptist background and yet it was very unique in that they observed the Lord's Supper every Sunday um, before, I, before I ever got there. And they continued to do it uh, long after I left. It was that experience that really began to shape my understanding of what the Lord's Supper is and perhaps what it, what it isn't. Hmm. Um, and what I mean is through that time, I began to develop a much more sacramental understanding of Holy Communion. So most low church Protestants would think of things like baptism and communion as ordinances, right? We do them uh, because Jesus commanded us to, and they're good, but they don't really do anything, right? They're symbols of Mm. of our faith. Well, the sacramental understanding says that, yes, we do them because Jesus said to, but it's so much more than that, that God's Holy Spirit actually, and this goes right along with the whole idea of Jesus and the incarnation, God's Holy Spirit actually works through things that God has made. So he works through the water of baptism to mark the person out and say, you belong to me uh, by faith. God works through the bread and wine of Holy Communion, and they mystically become for us the body and blood of Christ that God, Jesus gives us himself and strengthens us and gives us what we need. So I wasn't quite there yet, but I was moving that direction through that experience with River of Life and uh, Holy Communion. Fast forward a little bit, I, I went, I was in the National Guard as a chaplain uh, to supplement my income because it was a very small church, uh, you know, didn't get paid much, <laughs> not in it for the money, but you got to feed your family, right? Um, and when I went away from my army training in the chaplaincy and I was with a Baptist denomination, it, it just fit like a glove. And uh, it really seemed like the Lord was calling us to do that 
uh, full time. And so we talked about it and we prayed about it and we talked to the church about it. And uh, we ended up after only two years, we ended up uh, leaving that church. It was it was on good terms. Um, there were no hard feelings, anything like that. And they were lovely, lovely people. And then we came back on on active duty this time in, in the chaplaincy. Um, and so that was 2011. I found myself back at Fort Bragg, jumping out of airplanes with the 82nd Airborne <laughs> Division and an infantry battalion and uh, drinking from the fire hose. But great experience being out and about with soldiers. It was incredible. Um, and then shortly after, I found myself in Afghanistan on what was a very formative deployment. Very good, uh, but but very hard, kind of running the whole gamut of what can happen uh, in, in a combat environment. But this really... Uh, Thanks for being patient with all the background. This kind of gets us to the to the heart of your question, Andrew. Um, it was it was during that deployment that I really began to seek the Lord fervently about where I belonged in His church. What do I mean by that? Well, prior to um, prior to our deployment, we had three kids at the time, and I baptized Kendra, our oldest, when she was seven. Right. But as a Baptist, we didn't baptize little ones. So Jude was five, Danae was three. Amber had not been born yet. And so the other ones, you know, we just we, we waited. And I really began to struggle while I was deployed, um, you know, and while I was uh, I was ministering to people. Ministry was good. It was hard. We were doing memorial ceremonies for soldiers that had been killed. But I really began to struggle with the question of when do my children become members of the church? And I, could, I couldn't answer the question. I just couldn't, right? Um, because my tradition told me, well, baptism is symbolic. It doesn't actually do anything. And so you baptize people when they're old enough to confess uh, Jesus for, uh, you know, for themselves as Lord and Savior. And yet I couldn't, I couldn't find any good answers. I was like, well, what, what's that age? Right? What, and is there an age of accountability or is that just something that we made up? Because... I never saw that term anywhere in scripture. And actually I saw in, in scripture, just the, just the opposite, right? The idea that God welcomes little ones into his kingdom, uh, into his family of faith. And I read a very helpful book by actually a Presbyterian minister. Um, it's called the Lord's service and it's a biblical and theological study by a guy named Jeff Myers, a pastor in the PCA. And, and it looks at, Old Testament circumcision and New Testament baptism and an Old Testament um, Passover and New Testament communion. And what he said was, hey, little ones were members of the covenant community, um, whether they agreed to be or not, whether they confessed it or not, God welcomed them in. And as those who had received the sign of circumcision, they were eligible for the covenant meal of the Passover. And then he made the arguments biblically and theologically connecting that to Colossians 2 and the idea uh, that the New Testament correlation to circumcision is baptism and the New Testament correlation to the Passover uh, is in fact the Lord's Supper, this Holy Communion. And so that just really kind of kind of hit me where I was, where I it uh, met me where I was, I should say. And uh, that kind of started me uh, down the path of asking questions and further exploring um, the historic church. And uh, Presbyterianism was a, a reformed movement for sure, 
but the path ended up leading me to a much more uh, ancient way. My brigade chaplain was a guy named Kelly O'Lear, who was really there for me during some tough days in Afghanistan. And uh, he was a priest in the Anglican tradition. Um, began to hang out with him whenever I could. We weren't co-located, but we hung out a few times, um, asked questions. He was very helpful. And when I got home from that deployment, I just started reading everything I could. Books like Evangelical is Not Enough, Evangelicals on the Canterbury Trail. And what I began to find is that there were a lot of people like me who were very evangelical in their faith, who loved to preach Jesus, who preached scripture, and yet were longing for something more, something historically connected, historically rooted. Because what I realized, this is not indictment on anybody but me, as a Protestant, I was, I was largely ignoring the entire history of the church. And I was interpreting scripture based upon what I thought. And I came to understand and realize that that's a, that's a really dangerous place to be. <laughs> and that's how heresy happens. And that's how schism happens. And that's how uh, people are led astray. And so as I got back from that deployment, um, I had a period where I didn't have to be in a chapel on Sunday mornings. And during that time, I began to take my family uh, to the Anglican church in Hope Mills <clears throat> outside of Fort Bragg. And you know, the, the Lord really brought it all together for us. Um, it was all the wonderful, biblical, expository, Christ-centered preaching that I knew and loved as an evangelical, uh, coupled with everything I had been missing uh, before with liturgical, historic, sacramental worship. And far from being rote or just check the block, it, it really gave cry to the voice of my heart. And uh, Meredith had that same experience. And so we're able to hear God's word read, to receive that teaching from God's minister, and then to come on our knees at the altar, right? And to kneel before the Lord as sinners in need of grace, and to extend our hands and to receive Holy Communion. And knowing that it, it was in remembrance, but it was so much more than that. It's what, it's what Jesus says it is. It's his body and it's his blood and what the church has always taught, right? that the Lord gives us himself and strengthens us uh, to be his people. He really does nourish us and, and feed us. And so that's kind of the story in a nutshell. I've grown and learned so much more since then. I still have so much more learning and growing <laughs> that I need to do. Um, but that's, that's kind of the story up to that point. Um, and then from then on, I, I started the process with the group that's now my ecclesiastical endorser the jurisdiction of the armed forces and chaplaincy for the Anglican church in North America, uh, began their tutorial of reading and study in, uh, October, 2013, I was ordained as what we call a transitional deacon. And then in June of 2014, I was ordained uh, to the priesthood. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that, man. And it, it definitely sounds like the Lord used a combination of, of just your personal experiences. Um, maybe a key, uh, person or two involved along the way. And then, um, you know, some of the uh, materials from your study to, uh, to lead you to where you are today with, with the Anglican church. I, I think for many of us, one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation with you is I do think that, that many, my own background and many of the people that I've discipled and even today that I'm involved with, um, 
we we are from a Protestant lower church uh, tradition, and we may not even think of it as a tradition, but it, it is. You know, like all of us, you know, the, the faith didn't start with us, so therefore all of us are are swimming in a certain um, uh, faith tradition within Christianity. Um, and so I'll put some resources in the show notes of this of this episode, but I would encourage people to to at least do a sketch survey of church history and you know how did the church get to where it started in jerusalem on that day at, at pentecost to where it is today in 2023 and far from being something that should cause us to 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 be um at odds with people from other faith traditions, to me, it's a be- it's a beautiful tapestry of how God is working and has worked over the centuries in the lives of His people. Um, when I first studied church history, um, I was a fairly young believer, and I read I read a book called Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley, and I would still recommend that resource. It's a bit of a read, so um, but it'll give you a good overview from from the beginning to today. Um, One of the things that came out of that for me was just a humility to realize that even though all of us had these convictions, you know, we have the beliefs that we have because uh, to our best understanding, this is what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus. But there's a humility that comes from realizing that other believers throughout history have had that faithful devotion and lived it out in you know, uniquely different ways from what we would see today, especially as Protestants. Um, so that's a resource that I would recommend. Another one uh, would be uh, a set of lectures given by a, uh, a man by the name of Luke Timothy Johnson. I don't know if you've heard that name, but um, he, he does a great job of tracing the history of the church from Pentecost to the Reformation. So actually, you know, before Protestants came on the scene. What did the church look like? And I think that's very helpful for um, for people who are in a Protestant tradition. You know, you mentioned uh, that you're Anglican. Many of our listeners won't even know what that is. But uh, when the church, it's the Church of England, essentially, like the 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 Anglican Church started back with Henry VIII, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, um, and it was when. Uh, there was a big Protestant movement going on across Europe, and they were protesting uh, what they saw as uh, abuses and unfaithful practices by the Catholic Church uh, in Europe. Mm-hmm. And so they became known as Protestants, those the people who were protesting. And eventually they, they wanted to, ref- you know, ultimately they wanted to reform the church, which is why it's called the Reformation. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Many of them did not want to break from the Catholic Church. Uh, but ultimately, that's what ended up happening. And within the Protestant streams of the Christian faith, there's a broad variety of, of traditions from the Anglican Church, uh, from the Church of England to the Lutheran Church, which really was started in Germany through Martin Luther um, and and many others, the, the, the Puritans, uh, many of the, the the names that we've we've heard, but we don't necessarily know how they fit um, it's helpful to, uh, to know where we came from and, and where we fit in that broader map of, of faithful believers around the world today. Um, and yet, uh, I, I guess 
a question I would have for you, Robin, you may not have an answer. I don't know if you've thought about this, but why do you think it is that whether it's Baptists or Methodists or uh, evangelical free, uh, why do you think some of these expressions of, of, of faith within Christianity have moved away from some of the more um, liturgical, um, you know, the, the book of prayer, those views on the sacraments? Uh, do you have a, a, an idea of what led to that? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I mean, honestly, Andrew, I, th I think it comes down to uh, interpretation, uh, interpretation of Scripture. So the, the question is really. What what guides our interpretation of Scripture are, you know, is every Christian able to interpret it freely for himself or do we defer to those who have come before us? Right. Um, so. There, there's a there's a great resource that I that I commend to people out there. Uh, Archdeacon Michael McKinnon, he's a priest in the Anglican tradition. He served for a long time in Massachusetts, and um, he serves now in uh, North Carolina. And you can find it like on uh, podcast on your iPhone. It's I think the Anglican Studies tutorial. And one of the things he talks about is you know all along for the first fifteen hundred years of the church you would never go anywhere where they didn't subscribe to the historic order of bishops, priests, and deacons, right? There, there would be no church with like Pastor John or Pastor Steve or executive pastor so-and-so. Like that stuff just, it wasn't a thing, right? It had been handed down. And even at the schism between East and West, uh, th those things continued. Which would have, I'm, I'm just going to jump in every now and then. So that was, that happened yeah. back when the Catholic Church split from what we now consider the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church. And this would have been somewhere around 1000 AD. So there was this, the Great Schism, which was about mm -hmm. 500 years before the Reformation, there was a split in the church. Prior to that, um, there was just the Catholic Church. Um, after that, you had East and West. You had Rome and Constantinople as the epicenters of, of you know, and then you had the Pope in Rome and you had, I don't even know what he was called. What's what's the the archbishop? Well, so that, that's, yeah, so that's one of the big differences between East and West. There's also some great books out there on Eastern Orthodoxy that I've been listening to. Um, and I've actually found that in many ways, uh, the Anglican tradition is is quite close to much of Eastern Orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the Great Schism happened in about 1097 between East and West. And, and even to this day, one of the key points of tension um, that's going to have to be resolved for there to be union or reunion is the idea of primacy, right? So the ancient church um, always said that it was the, the bishops who held the authority, right? Because Jesus... Uh, commissioned the apostles. He gave authority to the apostles. And as the apostolic age ended, those apostles passed on their authority to the bishops, right? Through the laying on of hands, which is a ceremony we still have in the church um, uh, to this day. And so over time in the Western church, uh, jurisdiction authority was consolidated um, under the Bishop of Rome. And to this day, Roman Catholics believe that it's the the, the chair of Peter, right? Peter as the one who has who has primacy, whereas the Eastern Orthodox would say, no, it's actually 
um, that authority is shared by by the various bishops. And that's that's the model that the Anglican tradition follows as well. Um, the English Reformation, and yes, the word Anglican does mean of England, happened and was influ- at near the same time and it was influenced by the Continental Reformation. And so by you know guys like Luther and Calvin and all those ideas that were swimming around, the difference between the English Reformation and the Continental Reformation, well, there's many, but mm-hmm. primary one, is that they retained Catholicity, the marks of Catholicity, right? So the ancient orders of bishop, priest, and deacon, for example, they've never deviated from that. And while the Church of England may call itself Protestant, really Anglicanism at its best is a reformed and biblical Catholicism. It's not Roman Catholic, but it is Catholic. And I'm actually much more comfortable calling myself a biblical evangelical Catholic than I am as a Protestant. I'm not really, I'm not really protesting anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right. Um, and just as an aside, it's been great as an army chaplain to really be able to minister to Roman Catholics and to minister uh, to Protestants and, and everywhere up and down in between uh, that spectrum. It's been very special. Now, there's times that Roman Catholics aren't able to receive the Eucharist from me, and I, I respect that. Um, but there's a there's a common language, a common understanding uh, that I have as, as a priest with my my low church Protestant friends, because I am an evangelical. Right. And my and my uh, high church uh, Catholic friends. Yeah. Um, so I, I there was more to your question, but I forgot what it was. <laughs> well, I actually think I, I think I actually interrupted you. I think your point was that um, to, to trace it all the way back, we were basically discussing that in terms of interpreting scriptures, Historically, um, believers have looked to uh, authority figures within the church, and in particular the the, the bishops. Um, and so, it's a question of you know where do you draw that line, and and how much how much do you rely on traditional interpretations and authority figures within the church today, and how much how much freedom do you have to to discern those answers for yourself? Um, I think that's what, where you were going with that. It it is. Yeah. Thanks so much. Um, and so for historical Christians, what we seek to do, I mean, we, we read scripture, right. And we oftentimes are able to understand scripture very plainly by the plain words of the text, Mm -hmm. but there's times we, we can't, there's times that it's hard, that it's confusing, that it's, you know, uh, difficult as we try to understand, um, what do we do? Well, we, we look to those who have gone before us, Right. And again, the apostles passed on that authority to the church fathers. And we have records from the church fathers. It's not scripture, but it's those who were closest chronologically to Jesus, right? So we we hear church fathers talking about things like the real presence of Christ in communion and uh, the laying on of hands uh, for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, we, we could go could go on and on with that kind of thing. Right. Uh, the historic offices of bishop and, and priest and deacon. So if I'm just picking up my Bible, you know, today, can I really understand what God's telling us if I if I skip 2,000 years uh, of church history? And there'll be some that I can understand, but but there's a lot that I can't. Right? And an example would be uh, Jesus in the Gospel of John when he breathes on the disciples and says, "Receive the Holy Spirit." Right. And he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, it is withheld. 
we can't understand what's happening there without the history of the church and without the church fathers, right? Because we're like, well, how does this measure up with Pentecost? And we just make things up. But that was Jesus' ordination, if you will, of the apostles into their apostolic ministry. And they had an authority as apostles that other, that other Christians, everyday Christians didn't have. Not that they were more important than, but that, than other Christians, but they had a specific role uh, given to them by Jesus. And for example, that's why, you know, when I was ordained a priest, my bishop uh, placed his hands on me and he said, receive the Holy Spirit for the office and work of a priest in the church of God. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, it is withheld. And so those words go all the way back uh, to Jesus himself and his charge to the apostles um, that night in the upper room. I think a lot of folks, if they've listened this far into the episode, because this is a much different conversation than we typically have on uh, Into the mm-hmm. Harvest. I hope people are hanging in there uh, because people are, I mean, I'm probably going to hear on this one, like, what was that all about? Well, first of all, <laughs> I probably should have said this at the outset and maybe I'll put it in the intro. Uh, my my intent in having this conversation, it really isn't to try to persuade people that they need to convert to Catholicism or become Anglican uh, or, mm-hmm. or any other high church tradition. Eastern Orthodox, Episcopalian. Um, It's really more so that I I believe that for those of us, one of our slogans is helping people live the ancient faith in modern times. That's beautiful. I think we need to understand that as believers, we have, we've been entrusted with an ancient faith. It's not something that just uh, came to us in, in the 2000s. Um, mm-hmm. And there's much that we need to learn from church history, from tradition. It doesn't mean that we embrace all of it wholesale. Um, but I, I think that for many of us as modern people, one of the real challenges is that we, we are disconnected or unanchored from a lot, not just from history and from tradition. Um, but I think we're, we're also oftentimes um, more and more we're becoming um detached from even the material world. And so I know you and I had had a conversation maybe a month or so back, and I want to shift us a little bit here because um, we've got about 15 minutes here, and I want to make sure that we touch on some of what I think will be relevant and hopefully practical for uh, for people who are listening to this. I think um, I just had a conversation with um, uh, Brad Briscoe. It's going to come out... um, Actually, it'll come up before this one, this podcast post. So folks uh, who are listening here, they can go back if they didn't hear that conversation with Brad. But we talked about how the church in the West, so particularly here in in the United States, there's a real sense that the church is losing ground, certainly with the culture, that that faith and the practice of faith, you know, most, most people today, and especially people who are younger, 15 to 30, um, there's either at best, there's a skepticism towards, um, organized religion. Um, and in many cases there's hostility towards it, a a distrust for, for faith. Um, and so I think we want to figure out, well, how, how can we be anchored to the, um, the faith and why, why are we feeling that way? I, I think that uh, for those of us in the church, that that causes a lot of concern. 
and you and I had this conversation about the three R's, about how I think uh, thoughtful believers are trying to address this 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 uh, this feeling, and I would say even just this the reality that the church is is losing relevance, which I don't think necessarily is a bad thing. Like God is building his his, his church, so I don't think the church is is in any danger of going away. But there is a question, if we are evangelical, part of our mission is to to be in the world for the world. So um, believers, I think, are responding to this loss of of ground in three ways. And and one is, I think, to retrofit the 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 church itself. And this I'm I'm talking primarily in Protestant churches um, and lower churches where we're trying to to be more missional. We're trying to tweak what we're doing in the church from week to week so that it's more relevant. I think you saw this in the 90s with seeker sensitive churches where we're trying to shift what we're doing. We're trying to retrofit this older um, clunky church (laughs) to make it more appealing and more relevant to our modern culture. So retrofitting, you see this in a lot of other ways, whether it's small groups or life groups, um, meeting in coffee shops or school auditoriums. But at the heart of it, we're still doing the, the same basic practices of being Sunday centric, pastor driven. Um, the, the essentials haven't really changed. We're just trying to retrofit. A second thing that people are doing, I would say is just revolution. And this is where you get into house church and, and actually departing, kind of going native, going, going, <laughs> going all the way down to the roots and trying to re repractice what the early church might have been doing in the first century. And then the third R is a return to some of the historic tradition. So there's a there's definitely been a shift towards Catholicism, towards um, Anglican uh, expressions of faith that I've observed. And again, even if we don't see people going all the way to where they're worshiping and participating and becoming members of those churches, there's an interest in the church calendar, in observing Lent, in observing Advent. And I think it's because we sense that we're, we're unanchored, we're, we're detached and we're, we're losing our connection um, with the world. So those three responses of retrofitting, um, just revolution, uh, and then return, I think those are those are three, three things that I have uh, observed over the past really 10 years in particular. Uh, and I think it's because people are trying to respond to what do we need to do to be more faithful in our calling, to be a peculiar people on mission. And it could be that in some cases we need to reconnect with some of the historic um, practices and traditions that guided the church, even though that seems like it would actually run contrary to you know, our, our modern world that's, that's hurtling in this direction, going back to a different time and a different set of practices could actually be appealing to a lot of people who are disenchanted with what the modern world is offering them, even outside of the church. So that's a lot. Um, but I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, that you would want to share. And then I want to shift into, um, the three frequencies of faith that we we talked about, but any thoughts on these um, these movements within the church? Yeah, first let me say I hope I didn't nerd out too much on that last <laughs> that last portion. I hope I didn't lose lose folks on that. I was I was excited, uh, so thanks for bearing with me. Um, yeah, just a, just a couple of thoughts, and uh, 
certainly as you were touching on each of those, I was, I was thinking about that. I guess my first point would be to say, look, as Christians, we just need to remember that the gospel is always relevant. Um, and we never need to try to make it relevant. It is, it is, uh, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we share that message as those who love Jesus. Uh, we live out our faith in Jesus in a warm, uh, gracious, compassionate way, uh, to those who need him so desperately, they see Christ in us, they experience him and they want to come and follow him as the Holy spirit does a, does a work in their hearts. So we, we never need to worry about trying to make the church relevant, the gospel relevant. They are, and, and they'll remain that way. Um, I'll speak to the idea of, of return. You know, I, I think that in this day and age where people feel untethered, like you said, they're longing for something solid. And I think that people are realizing that ritual in a positive sense in the church is a good thing. Hmm. You know, I think there was a time where evangelicals and, and I was this way myself, we would just flee from anything that smacked of Catholicism, right? Well, oh, that's ritualistic. I can't, I can't do it. Where prayers are written down, that means it's not from the heart. But I think people um, are beginning to understand that that's really, that's really not the case, right? Um, God is a God of order. He, he created the world and everything in it. He created months and weeks and years and days. There's a rhythm to life that he's given us. And there's a rhythm to worship. We see it in, we see it throughout scripture, right? Old Testament uh, and new. So I think when we experience that type of worship um, in whatever setting it might be, I think it really beckons to our hearts and it, uh, it brings us to a place beyond ourselves to something much greater than, than us. And, and of course I would, you know, put forth that in the historic church, we're, we're connecting with the church, right? Uh, the church throughout all time, the saints who have gone before us and we're connected with all of those worshiping the Lord around the world. Um, e even now, you know, during our uh, communion liturgy, we say, uh, therefore we praise you joining our voices with angels and archangels and all the hosts of heaven. Yeah. Right. And, and it really does take us beyond ourselves, um, in, into God's throne room. So absolutely. I think people are longing for that. And I think as they experience that in the historical worship, that it, it really resonates with them. Let me launch from there into this, this conversation, um, about the, the frequencies of faith. And then I want to wrap up just by talking about what can those of us who are low church, what can we glean or take from the high church? Again, for some, they may want to follow a similar path to what to what you and your family have, where they may actually begin to worship and practice with uh, an Anglican church or an Episcopalian church or, or even a Catholic church. Um, but for many of us, I think there's there's a lot of room to benefit from from what we can learn from our high church brethren and incorporate into our own uh, practice of discipleship, both as individuals, but as communities of, of saints. But I wanted to um, touch on this idea of the frequencies of faith, because I, I think you can see it play out. And so within the Protestant world, you, you tend to have different camps or, or different frequencies that people are drawn to. And so my observation is that people who are of a more reformed bent, they, they tend to operate, they, what draws them to that tends to be a high regard for uh, truth 
and I would say it's it's very appealing to our minds, like mentally, the the theology, the the rationality, the clear articulation of of doctrines and and principles. Uh, so it's a frequency that's really led by our minds, and, and, and it appeals to our minds. And there's nothing wrong with that. But for for most um, people who adhere to reform tradition. Um, that's sort of the lead vehicle, you know, in the convoy is is our minds. And then for those of us who are in a more charismatic uh, tradition, um, what's really appealing to us about that is the sense of connection, the 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 feeling of being pr uh, God's presence within us, um, a desire to see um, a connection with the spiritual world, to see the spiritual world break in in dramatic ways and in 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 ways that show the power of God. So that that's really, uh, it, it appeals to our hearts that um, we tend to be more emotional in, in our faith expression. And so that's a frequency. Um, I think for most Protestants, that's all they really think about is the mind and the heart. Um, and as I think about the, the more high church uh, traditions, I, I would say that it's more driven by the body and and connecting us with the the world around us with one another, and it's a very beautiful thing. But it's a little bit um, it's a little bit harder to see initially. But um, I, I wanted to ask you if that makes sense and if you would agree with it. Um, where those who are more orthodox or high church, like you mentioned, with the the understanding of baptism and the observation of the Lord's Supper, that, that it's actually the material substances are an important part of that. And then even, um, even in practicing the calendar, um, you know, there, there are, you know, being in touch with the, the world, the, the material world around us and the seasons is a big part of the expression of that faith. So, yeah, I just wanted to give you a chance to speak to that and see if it made sense and if you would add anything to that. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. I, I appreciate um, the, the question. So I, I think perhaps the best way to go about answering it is simply to say that in the uh, historic Christian tradition, the idea is that our faith is incarnational, right? So God became man in Jesus Christ to walk among us, to live among us, to rescue us from our sins and to uh, change our hearts and give us eternal life, right? And to put us on mission uh, in, in the world. We are human beings. They're, you know, our, our bodies and spirits are, are together. It's not, uh, one's not elevated over the other. We, the whole person is body and spirit, right? And even at, even at death, there's a separation of that, but what's gonna happen? Resurrection, right, body and spirit being reunited, just as we see in the Lord Jesus uh, in his own resurrection at Easter, which is a sure and certain sign of, of our own future uh, resurrection, right? So in terms of incarnation, Jesus' incarnational ministry, um, in our own lives, God works through material substances. We talked about it earlier, water in baptism, bread and wine in communion, but even in worship, right? Um, we get down on our knees to pray, Right. And the, and the posture of our bodies is to inform or echo the posture of our hearts. Right. Um, we pass the peace. We get we talk to people. We greet people. We clasp hands. We hug. 
you know, maybe in some places they're still doing the holy kiss, right? <laughs> There's this, this incarnational being, this enfleshment of Christians connecting with one another. Mm. Um, one of the things we do is, you know, as a, as a priest, I carry around oil uh, that's been consecrated by my bishop. And I, I anoint people with oil, just as we read in James chapter five, right? The elders, the presbyters of the church would do that. And we do that today. So placing hands on anointing with oil, there's a tangible uh, aspect uh, to that. So that's all very uh, prevalent, but um, that doesn't exclude the, the emotions and it doesn't exclude uh, reason, right? So for example, in the Anglican tradition, uh, we do emphasize scripture first and foremost, uh, but then reason and tradition and reason, right? Um, so those things are very important. We may not place as much emphasis on some aspects of systematic theology as maybe some of our other friends do, right? But it doesn't mean it's not important. And emotion is still very, very much an important part of it. In fact, there's many uh, Christians within the Anglican tradition, and I know Roman Catholics who would describe themselves as, as charismatic, right? Who mm-hmm. have right. had ecstatic utterances, praying in tongues, those types of things, right. um, which God does give to some, to some people, not all, but to some. So, so yes, to your point about, uh, if we could use the word incarnational, but not to the exclusion of, uh, of reason and emotion. Yeah. Well, brother, uh, we try to keep these to about an hour and we're, we're kind of there. So we'll, uh, we'll start to wrap it up. Um, I think what I would hope people will take away from this, and then I'll, I'll give you the last word, um, of what you would hope that those who are coming from a similar background as yours might be able to glean from our high church brother. And I'll, I'll let you share your, your final thoughts, but I hope people will take away two things. First, that, that people would take the time to study church history. And there are tons of, of great resources to do that. I'm going to put a couple in the notes, but you can go out and find your own. Um, there are, yeah, just, just great resources, but I would say, and, and make it a lifelong thing. Like I, I'm still trying to learn and and piece together more of what God has done through the centuries in the church. I think that there's great value that we can learn from that, that will actually inform and center our current practices of faith. Um, and then secondly, I, I hope people will think about how their mind, their heart, and their their bodies, how, how they're connecting with the material world in their discipleship. I, I do think for many of us who are from a low, low church tradition, we have a very disembodied faith where we're not we're not as connected. I know for for decades, well, maybe not decades, but for a long time, my understanding, I didn't even really believe in the physical resurrection. And it wasn't that I didn't believe in it. It was just that that wasn't emphasized, the idea that our bodies are going to be resurrected and restored. You know, we have this idea that we're just going to be ghosts floating around in heaven for an eternity, but that's not what the scriptures teach. And I think it's because we've, we've become so detached from how the material world is created by God and is part of our expression of faith. Our engagement with that world is very important. And I think in the modern world, it's becoming all the more challenging to uh, to do that. So I would say those two things, study church history, and then uh, try to incorporate more of 
the, the body and our material world in your practice of, of discipleship. But Rob, from your point of view, what can uh, low church believers learn from our high church brethren? Yeah, I think just the, the idea that uh, the tradition, that history, that liturgy, those, those, are not, those are not bad things. It may not be um, what you prefer, right? Um, but they're not bad. And there's, there's much there that I think would, you would find uh, encouraging um, and that you'd be, you'd be truly grateful for. Um, I remember as a, as a Baptist chaplain, I was getting ready to do a wedding and I was like, oh man, what do I say? <laughs> and so I found a book of common prayer. I opened it up to the wedding service and dearly beloved, like there it was, right? <laughs> it, 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 it had been there. It had been there all along. Hmm. Um, so just to remember those things, but then in, in terms of resources, uh, just a couple, uh, one kind of touching Andrew on what you said about the, uh, the tactility of, of our of our faith, um, a really really good book um, by the scholar uh, N.T. Wright, uh, I think from back in about 2009, and it's called "Surprised by Hope: a Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the the Mission of the Church." And he gets mm. right down to that that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was in a physical, glorified, eternal body, and we're we're not just going to go to heaven when we die we're going to be raised from the dead mm. and, and Jesus makes all things new. And that has massive implications for how we live our lives right. as those whom God has redeemed and made new. We are objects of his new creation and we get to bring his new creation to bear in the world around us. And that is so exciting because that means everything that we do matters. The way we treat our spouses and kids and friends and coworkers, the way we conduct ourselves and contribute to art and music and society, everything matters because God is at work in his new creation. And the other thing would simply be to uh, maybe look online uh, at, a, at a book of common prayer, just look at an office of uh, morning prayer or evening prayer or Compline, which is a very short evening office, or just go to a special service sometime, uh, maybe during the season of Lent, a service that your church doesn't offer, maybe like a Holy Thursday, Good Friday kind of thing, just to experience it. You don't have to participate. You don't have to make any decisions. Um, just, just listen and, and learn, maybe ask some questions afterwards, um, and, and just see, see how the Lord might use that. And this isn't intended to be Anglican propaganda, <laughs> I promise, <laughs> right. but, but I do think those things would be, um, really encouraging to anybody from, from any, uh, any background within Christianity. Awesome, brother. Well, I will definitely put the links both to that book by N.T. Wright, who many people have probably heard that name. They may not realize he's with the Anglican Church. Um, and also a link to the Book of Common Prayer. Um, I can put that in there as well. That's it's available online. So, Rob, thanks again, man, for making time to be with us today and for uh, sharing with us. I appreciate it. Andrew, it's been a joy. I really appreciate it, brother. Thank you. 